I am Joel McLeod. I'm Roland Tanner. And welcome to the 905er. Now, faithful listeners of this podcast might recall that last year, we talked about the current progressive conservative government's plans to build Highway 413. Now, just to recap for those of you who might not be aware, this proposed highway would stretch from the top of Halton near Milton, reaching up to north of Vaughan, connecting to Highway 400. Much of the area that will be used to build this project right now is prime agricultural farmland, as well as certain portions of the Greenbelt are also included in the project's plans. Now, a price tag associated with this highway runs between 6 to $10 billion, and that's a billion with a B. The benefits of the highway being built so north of us brings a lot of questions about its usefulness, and an off-sighted fact about the project is that it will only save commuters at best about 30 seconds on their commutes. Now, for a while, it seemed that this project was going to remain in limbo, as opposition to it is widespread over various communities in the 905. However, recent comments by Premier Ford, as well as a new ad campaign by the Ontario PC Party, indicates that the Highway 413 is indeed a priority to be built for them. Now, not all are happy with this news. For years now, an online group of activists have been mobilizing in the various communities in the 905, which would would be directly impacted by this highway. The Facebook group, Stop the 413, has regularly engaged civic municipal and provincial leadership through petitions, letter writing, as well as knowledge awareness campaigns to help build their opposition to the highway. One of the organizers of this group is Irene Ford, and today we invited her to join us. Irene is a community and environmental advocate, as well as a former municipal research analyst. She became involved with the campaign against the 413 when she saw what she perceived as the Ontario government's reduction of the impact of environmental legislation during the COVID-19 pandemic. As well, she has a lot of questions regarding the decision by Vaughan City Council to endorse six ministerial zoning orders, which would help the 413 being built, as they received very little input from residents such as herself. She joins us today to discuss the impact she believes the 413 will have on the community, as well as the environmental impact it will have surrounding the 905 region. And as always, we are encouraging to help us support telling stories like this and to keep us going by supporting us on Patreon. For a small fee of only $7 per month, you can help this podcast continue to grow and to continue to tell the stories that are important to you here in the 905. And if that's too much for you, we also offer the chance for you to buy us a coffee for as low as only $5 or as high as you'd like. Any and all contributions are greatly appreciated. I'd like to thank Irene Ford from uh, the Grassroots Facebook group, Stop the 413, for coming on today to uh, to chat with Roland and myself about, prize surprise, Highway 413, or at least the proposed Highway 413 running in the north of the 905, 905 region. Irene, thank you for coming on to the podcast today. Thank you so much. It's great to be here. I'm happy to listen to anyone who wants to hear me talk about this. So, <laughs> Well, this has been... Uh, We've we've talked about this before on the podcast months ago, and uh, honestly, I think Roland and I kind of thought this was almost a, a done a done deal. You know, there was talk about kind of stopping the the four thirteen when the people like yourself were quite vocal and, and adamant against against the the project. Uh, a lot of municipalities were coming out and against the project, and it kind of seemed that the Ford government was saying, "Okay, well let's 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 put this back on the back burner and let's focus on other priorities," and then. That's that seems to have changed in the recent uh, recent weeks. You know, you know let, let's let's start off talking about uh, about that and and your group or your your, your compatriots' perspective on the four thirteen kind of coming back onto the provincial radar. Um, 
Well, Doug Ford kind of, I think, did us a favor by making it an election issue because we thought it was going to be our job to do that. And, and he's done that for us and got it back in the media and got a lot of interest back in the project. Um, so, uh, you know, that's great, actually, for us. Um, you know, I think Doug Ford is, and the P Ontario PC Party uh, is kind of banking on people being very frustrated with traffic congestion and looking for solutions. And so they're supporting the highways. And um, so we spent a weekend at the Woodbridge Fair recently. And I have to say that every single person that we talked to, once they learned more about the highway, and some of which were even Doug Ford supporters, did no longer support the highway. Like people just really, they don't understand where it is. They don't understand how big it is, that it's four to six lanes wide. It's a hundred... Uh, and 170 meters wide, it's uh, going to have dedicated bus transit. That's and it's located where nobody lives. So it's for it's taking a lot of infrastructure dollars away from our existing communities who desperately need infrastructure improvements. And so that's what we're trying to help people understand and to raise awareness about. That, that's that, that's kind of a, a big point. There is that there's a lot of question about the necessity of this highway. I mean, we we. Roland lives now in Hamilton. I live in, in Burlington. We are well versed in the traffic that is 905 traffic in, in the region. But we've always, we always keep hearing about, oh, we need to build another, just another highway and that's going to fix the congestion on the QEW or on the 401. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to leave it to you. you clearly your, organ, your organization or your, your, your people uh, feel differently about that. Do you want to kind of maybe explain to our listeners who are who are not as well versed on this topic about why you're opposed to the fact that another uh, the Highway 413 will not solve the traffic woes that are in the region? Uh, a lot of my concerns stem from environment, and and you know the the highway is going to be environmentally destructive. It's going to go over farmland, some of the best farmland in Canada. It's going to destroy. Uh, some very finite habitat that's left for endangered species in Southern Ontario. Um, and there's things like even air patterns that will be changed that will affect the monarch butterfly or uh, other birds that, you know, they won't be able to go over the highway if they build something like this. And, but beyond that, it, it kind of isn't going to solve anybody's traffic woes right now. So, you know, if you live in Vaughan, this highway is at the north end. It's going to dead end at 400. So who's going to drive north to come back down south again? I, I, I can't see anyone who's going to do that. And I think it's the same thing for people who live in Brampton and even who live in Halton. Your, your traffic woes are much further to the south. And then we have the 407, which is largely underutilized, as was demonstrated by the small plane that landed on it this week that did not cause any traffic disruption, it was actually able to land and not cause an accident. Um, so, you know, I think there's just so many more solutions that need to be investigated first. And uh, what this highway is really good for is getting, um, is sort of starting to degrade the land so that you can justify building sprawl and building maybe warehouses and other things around it. Um, and I think it's also really good if you're a corporation who's in e-commerce or in warehousing and you're interested in goods movement. And I personally, as a taxpayer, am not willing to uh, subsidize goods movement for private corporations and, you know, or pave the green belt so people can get their Amazon packages in two days. So I think people really need to say, well, who is this highway really for? Who is it really benefiting? And 
I don't think it's us. It's not the everyday people. And, you know, in Vaughan, desperately, we need better transit at Jane and Rutherford. There's condos going up like crazy right there. The subway is, you know, still quite a bit further south. Um, so even though Vaughan is, you know, saying we have this subway, you still have to take a bus to get there. And the transit's not great. So we need we need solutions that get people out of cars. We do not need solutions that keep people in cars, put more people in cars, or are going to just fill up again because induced demand is a very real phenomenon. It's very well researched. Once you build more roads, once you build more highways, they just fill up and people just keep driving, right? But if you build more transit, then you'll get the ridership, but you're never going to get it if you don't improve it, you don't make it accessible. And, you know, so there's a lot of reasons to not support it above and beyond, you know, the kind of fundamental fundamental environmental reasons and that we're in a climate emergency. And it's being bulldozed through during a pandemic as well. You said right at the start, you know, this, this is a road being located where nobody lives, which immediately kind of begs the question, you know, why is it being built? Where's the pressure coming from to build this? And, and who, builds, who builds highways where nobody lives? I mean, nobody does, unless you've got plans to make it somewhere where people do live. I mean, you've already kind of said, you know, this, 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 this really serves industry if it serves anybody at all. Do you think, I mean, where do you think the pressure is coming on the government to build this? I mean, is it, it's not from voters. We, well, there's good evidence to suggest it's not really coming from voters. Who is it coming from? So the Toronto Star Friends with Benefits uh, article did, you know, a great piece last, uh, I believe it was early April it was released. And, you know, there's this amazing map in it that shows the land ownership surrounding the highway. And it's, you know, really big, well-known developer names who are also, um, you know, lobbying uh, local and regional councils to get their land brought into the urban boundary so that they can develop it. And, you know, so there's significant pressure coming from the development industry to get those lands opened up. And, you know, having the highway, I'm, I'm sure would also help that. Uh, I also wonder a lot about, you know, the construction industry and yes, jobs are good and yes, we need jobs and yes, the economy has to recover, but um, not in a way that's going to drive the climate crisis further and, you know, uh, and it's is just so detrimental to, um, to our health and to our future generations and to addressing the climate crisis. And so I think, you know, I often wonder about the jobs, Metrolinx and Infrastructure Ontario, quite frankly, even though they're, you know, they're crown corporations, I believe, but uh, they're really unaccountable and untransparent organizations uh, that handle very significant contracts for the province. Um, and, you know, should this highway be built, it's, it's, it's going to be, you know, $6 billion, $10 billion. There's a lot of money for the companies out there that are going to be able to build it. And there's even a lot of money for the consultants, right? They usually get 10% of whatever the construction costs are. So, you know, it's even hard to believe the information. The consultants are even biased who are doing the environmental assessment because, you know, it means future work for them. Although, you know, whether intentionally or not, they are. Um, but, you know, I, I just kind of wonder, do they really want to say all the environmental reasons why you shouldn't build the highway? Because it means no future work for them. And there was an environmental assessment already under the previous government. And that one pretty much came back saying this isn't needed. Don't build it. Isn't that right? So the GTA West 
uh, environmental assessment. I, I can't remember the exact date it started, but it was in the 2000s. And um, so the terms of reference, it was done in two parts. It was phase one and phase two. And phase one of the EA was actually looking at a really big study area. It was from Niagara, I think, over to where the 400 is. So up, you know, up north where the highway is around King Vaughn Road, uh, south down to the 401. And so they were looking at transit solutions for this sort of entire area. And so they came up with a whole bunch of solutions and some of them were widening roads or transit improvements and a bunch of other stuff. And then one of the conclusions of phase one was the GTA West corridor. And then after that, there was an expert advisory panel uh, who looked at just the GTA West portion of it. And they concluded that the environmental assessment that they did in phase one, concluding the GTA West, was fundamentally flawed for multiple reasons. But part of it being because it, it was looked at such a large area and it, it wasn't really a, an EA about the highway itself. So I kind of feel like it hasn't received a proper environmental assessment. Um, it's also not consistent with the Greenbelt plan, to my understanding, because it doesn't actually demonstrate need. So you're allowed to build infrastructure on the Greenbelt, but you also have to, for something like this big of a project, you have to demonstrate need and not opportunity. And I think the highway is more about opportunity. So right now we're in phase two of the EA. And so what people don't understand is that this is not a decision about if we should build the highway. They're already saying the decision on if we should build the highway was made in phase one and ignoring the expert advisory panel report, like they're pretending like it doesn't exist. And now we're in phase two. So what phase two is about is about how we build the highway and where the route will be. It, they're very different things, right? There's a couple of things on that that I, I, I want to touch on. Um, one is that one, you're saying it in, in, to demonstrate the the viability of the project uh, to build in the green belt. And there's a, there's a note that keeps coming up in my mind is the fact that study the previous government's study on this said that at best we'd be shaving what thirty seconds off somebody's commute um, if we build this highway. Like, it, and that's not a what six billion six billion ten billion dollar project to to save thirty seconds on a commute to Toronto. Uh, which is ridiculous. Am I that is that is that is that true, or am I am I so, getting my facts wrong here? Th no, you're not. So there's this whole thirty second versus thirty minute kind of debate going, <laughs> not debate, but uh, statistics that are being put out. And so the the thirty second uh, time was about phase one. Actually, it was thirty seconds of time savings when they were looking at this entire study area. That was a much larger area. So in, I think, March of 2018, after the MTO and the GTA West project team, I think we're starting to get some resistance to this project, this 30-minute timing savings started to come up, which kind of, you know, doesn't really make a lot of sense because it's a, a 50, what, I think it's 60 kilometers long and you're traveling 100, 120 kilometers and it's going to save you 30 minutes. So, but there's a lot of, uh, there's no reports that have been released that actually substantiate this 30 minute time saving. And there was some questions asked during the York Region Council meeting of MTO staff, like, you know, what year is this time savings estimated to be, to have been made in? Um, what assumptions are you making about people's use of transit or whether or not they're still on the car? Um, how does this compare to using the 407? And, you know, my recollection is that it was like some far off date in the future and there was 
not real clarity around the assumptions they made to get to this 30 minute time savings. Well, I mean, my, my question was always, it depends on the destination, right? I mean, it, I, I'm thinking if I myself, I live in Burlington, if I was to get on this highway to drive, the only, my only feasible destination would be probably going up north to bypass driving into Toronto, get on the 400 and then take continuing it up into like Muskoka cottage country. That's that, that to me is the really the only viable solution because if I want to get into Toronto, why am I going to go all the way up by King Vaughn and then double back to come down the 400 to go into the downtown? Well, I, I know. And same as if I was a truck, well, why am I going to spend all the gas to go up that way, turn around on the 400 and come back down to the four, 401 to continue my, my journey east? Um, it, it does like there, there are practical assumptions that nobody's been able to to satisfy in my mind, and which brings me kind of to my my next point is, what's your what's the, been the response from uh, the minister uh, responsible for the ministers responsible for this? I mean, I'm sure that you've written letters to the government, to the premier's office, to the the minister's offices to say we're you know we're we're opposed to this. Uh, what what's been the official response from them? Nothing. They're absent. So I, I can elaborate on you. I mean, the, the short response yeah, is they're completely, they're completely absent. There's no response. Uh, so uh, Minister Leachy is, um, his riding will house the 413 and, and a lot of the really environmental sensitive areas of Vaughan that remain. And, you know, he doesn't respond. I, I speak to members in his community. I'm associated with them. And he only came out, um, so I think, last August. So over a year ago, they started, you know, sending emails and reaching out to him and he was not responsive. And it was only in March when we started going to council and then this started getting media attention. He did reach out to a couple of the constituents, but since that time he's absent. Um, I believe Sylvia Jones is in Caledon. My understanding is she is the same with that. Um, I'm not as familiar with the Halton MPP. Brampton MPPs, some of them are NDP, so they're a little bit more, you know, their their party has come out saying that they oppose the highway, so it's a little bit different that way. Um, and Minister Mulroney, who is the Minister of Transportation, quite personally, she needs to take some heat for this, and she is not speaking either. And the Bradford Bypass, a separate project that does have EA approval that will run south of Lake Simcoe that's 17 kilometers long, um, was approved in 2002 at a time when climate change was not part of the conversation. The green belt didn't exist. Um, and they're using that EA approval to proceed with building it. And they want less environmental oversight than was required over 20 years ago, which is just absolutely ludicrous. And it's her riding. York Simcoe is her riding. And, you know, the one unifying thing up there politically is the health of Lake Simcoe. And she needs to step up and she needs to start speaking because she's got one highway going through her riding. She has the 413 coming through and, you know, she's not talking. She's, it's all fluff. If you look on her Twitter account, right? Like anything that can be positive, but I haven't heard her speak in the legislature legislature. I haven't seen her quoted on any of this stuff and I've never received a response from her office. I've sent two emails recently, one of which was about the 30 minute time estimate and what those time limits, what those estimates are actually based upon. Um, and I, and the other one was about the uh, conservation authorities because, you know, they have, they have staff reports and they have communications documenting that the MTO is not responding to them, is not providing the information 
to them that they've asked for for the highway. I think it's something worth making making listeners aware of. I mean, what you're saying is is happens everywhere all the time with every ministry um, that, uh, and it's not just the conserv the PCs who who do it. I, I just think they're much more experts at it. You just don't talk. The people who disagree to, with you, you just don't talk to them. You don't answer them. You don't. You don't say a word to them. You don't reply to emails. You don't. You don't go to the events they go to. You don't. You just. You know. And, and this government, more than any government, is not interested in environmental assessments or consultations or what the public thinks. It's already made its decision on every subject before it even gets up in the morning. To, you know, to yes. think of a better way of putting it that. The decisions have already been made. It's about finding, if you're going to do a consultation, making sure you get the consultation that gives you the result you, you've already decided you want. And it, it's it's so destructive. I mean, beyond the, the obvious environmental uh, side of the equation, it's so destructive to our democracy, our, our way of doing things when people operate like this. Um, and, you know, we saw it during the election federally. We'll see it next year in the provincial election. You know, this thing of of the candidates not talking to anybody. You know, they're, they're cutting off government from the people every single turn. And uh, so, yeah, this is this is me definitely not asking a question, but just having my own say. I but have some uh, it's deeply disturbing. <laughs> yeah, no, I, please I have go some ahead. Very hard. So. Yeah, I, I do want to say, actually, and when MPPs, I wanted to add to my previous answer, when MPPs do actually respond, it, it's a very scripted answer, and it's a very, uh, it's very easy to deconstruct, and it's, it's very evident that it's been, you know, this is, this is what you're supposed to say, right? It's not actually, and it doesn't, and it's the GTA West, which is not, they're the absolute worst. I call it non-answers. They are absolute experts at providing you a bunch of information that does not actually answer your question. And it's a form of um, actually shutting people down. And a lot of times it's really, you know, complicated, difficult stuff to understand. And, you know, and it, it really um, enrages me, actually, because uh, I think it's, it's, you know, people have the right to express concern and they have the right to speak up. And we're not all subject matter experts and nor should people be expected to be that. And so when you respond at that level, it's a, it's a form of shutting people down. And I think it, it's actually strategic and highly inappropriate. Absolutely. It is. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, it, but to your other thought, what I wanted to say was I've been thinking a lot during the pandemic, um, you know, just based on this, the highway and, and even the way things are going at local and regional governance and, you know, a lot of things are broken and, I'm not an advocate for any political party right now because I'm so disappointed in so many of them. Um, but I've been thinking a lot about the difference between government, which is politicians who we elect, and governance, which are the public institutions, you know, the administration, staff that do the day-to-day -day stuff. And politicians have, you know, I, I guess a lot of this neoliberal thinking that has allowed kind of government and governance to become weaker because, you know, this belief that, you know, leave, leave the private sector alone. They'll regulate themselves. They don't need it. Um, but what the, the result is, is that governance has actually become incredibly weak and politicians are undermining staff and, and staff are not able to come forward with recommendations or um, the politicians, the political process is interfering with the decision-making process. And it's, it's very, very, it's a systemic problem. It's been going on for a long time, but it's just incredibly pronounced right now. And the pandemic is another thing that's amplified it. 
you, you raised an interesting point there, Irina, and it's something, it's kind of a theme that we're hearing at the provincial level. Um, last week, we had on um, members from Stop the Sprawl Hamilton, Ontario, which kind of have the same ethos or the same, the same. Uh, I don't, I don't, don't want to say agenda, but I think ultimate Concerns. same goal, protecting Sorry? Same concerns, I would I would think. Same concerns. Yes, thank you. You should be doing this, not me. <laughs> um <laughs> but it was that they they you know they want they want to preserve our green space, the environment, the green belt, the this viable farmland that is uh we're not making any more of. Mm-hmm. It's 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 limited in and to preserve it, protect it uh, and all that stuff. However, this current government seems to be hell-bent on development, development, development. And I'm I'm wondering your your sense on when you know to play the devil's advocate role here and say yeah we need to to build build build. My question is when do we stop? Because you know we could keep um, um, the question I always have about building another highway is yeah we build a highway when people start driving it and it becomes full. When do we build the next one? Where do we build the next one? And you know what what's your what's your kind of your your take on that? What's what's your thoughts on just do we just keep doing more of the same, which is build a you know and a couple more neighborhoods, build another road somewhere, build another uh, uh, industrial center, you know, when, when does this stop? I, you know, I don't think I can answer that. I think it stops when enough people get angry enough and speak up and let their politicians know that they won't take it anymore, which is, I think what's happening with stop the 413. Um, I think it, it's, it's, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna fumble here because I'm going to give you a way more complicated answer than you want to get, I think. But um, so the other thing that I've observed when I've started doing a lot of my research on MZOs and on planning and on development issues and, and, you know, just how the things are working is I think that there's fundamental problems with the way things are financed right now. There's fundamental problems with shareholder returns and, um, you know, just how companies are shell companies and it's a, you know, you can't actually figure out who opens it and you have to, who, who owns it and you have to follow this path, but we're making money off money. We're not making like there's money being made off money and I, I can't understand it. I can't understand where all the money is going, is coming from for all this development either. Right. Like, and I, I think that we're spending money we don't have, which is really driving the environmental problems as well. And I, I, I don't think anything is going to change unless we change the way our, our financing system is working right now, right? So a lot of people are coming out, you know, the big banks and coming out against them because of, uh, you know, to not support climate change anymore. But I think it's, it's even bigger than that. We need like politicians and this is far, far beyond my understanding, but we need politicians that are actually going to be willing to come in and I trust the stock market, I guess. I, I don't know how else to put it. There was a Global Mail article the other day where it was like, it's perfectly normal for you to operate your business at with extreme debt. It's actually encouraged to do so. And, you know, so we're, it, it leads to this constant expansion, expansion, expansion and building and developing because you can finance everything because you can be in debt. And I think that's what needs to be fixed. But it's, I'm not an expert. A, that's just my observation. No, I mean, I think I think a lot of environmentalists, certainly, and a, a lot of people on the left would would say, and I'm not necessarily advocating this myself. It's just, but it's definitely a, an argument that needs to be made. Is our en- entire economy is is predicated on growth, on on 
so the growth in the use of resources, the growth in the population, which obviously, you know, when I was born, it was about 4 billion people. Now we're at 6 billion. <laughs> That's a hell of a lot of people. Um, and, and Canada in particular is our economy has been built on population growth, which means growth and exploitation of resources, which means more houses, which means, which is fine. I mean, it's made Canada's economy what it is, but you, at some point you do need to say, is this sustainable um, forever? You know, um, and it's definitely um, a question I don't think gets asked very much um, because it's an awfully awkward answer, whichever way you look at it. It's like, well, you're talking about completely changing the way our capitalist society works if you take growth out of the equation. Um, but um, I agree with yeah. that. But I, like, I think I go back to when I was a kid or something like that. You, you wouldn't, if you, if you couldn't afford something, you wouldn't buy it. Now you go and you mortgage your house. Right. So we're able to consume at much higher rates because we're able to, you know, get a line of credit against the house and do that renovation or, you know, so even in our own individual, I think, way that we live and not all of us, some of us are, you know, that that divide is um, becoming quite great. Some people can't have no options at all. And that's unfortunate, too. But I just... I just feel like this ability to, you know, just borrow more money and go out and buy it and consume is really uh, driving a lot of this. And I think that if we couldn't, uh, it would change our behaviors. I think we just need things. And, and these changes, they need to be, um, they need to be uh, almost automatic, right? Like, so you, you can't, you know, this individual choice actually, and coming back to, you know, it's up to individuals to change their behavior that actually defies action. You know, when, when you're telling people, and I worked on waste management, I'm a big believer in recycling. I'm not saying I, I don't believe in recycling, but when you go back to, you know, your own individual action of recycling is, is going to solve everything. Well, no, that's not true. Like we need collective action and we need action, but it, it's systematic change that we need to have. And, and these things need to be automatic. Right. They just need to be like, that's the way it is. It's like dog poop. I always go back to dog poop. It's a social norm. <laughs> Never leave your poop. No, but if you leave your poop, everyone in society looks at you like you're, you know, how could you do right. that? That's disgusting. Right. And I think mm -hmm. we need some of these social norms to come out about the environment. And I think that's what we're starting to happen with climate change, where these these behaviors like polluting and excessive development and, and paving over our source water and our headwaters, mm -hmm. it's unacceptable. We won't take it anymore. Well, I mean, that's kind of what the green belt was about. Was kind of a way to stop that systematic sprawl. I mean, that that if you remember before the the green belt, it was there was a real concern, like, oh, we're just going to keep building the next subdivision, we're going to build the next strip plaza, you know, we're going we're going to build the next mall, and we just because we had all this green space, kind of as far as the eye can see, and the the, the assumption was always, oh, we could just keep building the next, extend the road another few kilometers, and we'll build another whatever it is that we need. And then the green belt came along, and it kind of. I, th I, I think we're finally hitting that that wall. We there was a bit of a buffer zone to the green belt, but over the years we've we're now hitting we're getting right into the green belt. Well, that's um, why the I, sorry the current urban expansion that the the government's proposing that's essentially it. It's going to build right out to the the buffer of the green belt, and it's right. going to bleed into the green belt because you're going to have things like stormwater ponds on those adjacent uh, on the subdivisions that are built next to them because infrastructure is allowed to be built on the green belt, and then it will just. Mm -hmm. It will continue to bleed. I lost my point, but I think that 
development will be allowed on the green belts as long as politicians let it happen and as long as politicians don't enforce legislation. And that's the other piece. We have a lot of legislation saying that you can't do a lot of things and it's just a cost of doing business. And they, and, you know, companies are going out and they're doing it. They're, you know, I can tell you several sites in Vaughan that have just set up shop and then they bring the, they, so they have, they don't have the proper zoning. They haven't gone through the proper planning process. And Vaughan's reaction is just to bring them into compliance, maybe not on the green belt, but on farmland per se, some on the green belt. There's one site that's on the Oak Ridges Moraine and green belts. It's like, you know, beg for forgiveness later. I'm just going to do it. And then I'll ask for forgiveness later. Well, it's, yeah. that's kind of the, the mentality that that's going on there. I mean, if you, it's going back to that neoliberal uh, philosophy that you were mentioning <laughs> earlier in the podcast that, you know, it's my land, I should do whatever I want with it. The problem is in the green belt, that farmland isn't your land like that. If you, I don't want this to sound like, you know, a socialist communist mentality, but we need, we kind of depend on that farmland because we depend on the farmers to grow potatoes and corn and peppers and carrots and all that stuff that we eat, right? It's, it's, it's there to, for us to, it's there kind of for our collective good, not an economic, just to eat, right? Like we, we need that farmland to build, to grow crops, to, to have livestock be able to graze naturally to have, you know, for us to, to eat. And it's one of these things like, you know, nobody's, nobody seems to make this connection that is, and also, you know, water purification, you know, the, 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 wet, the wetlands that, that are used to help make uh, our waterways safe to, to drink. So it filters into Lake Ontario, Lake Erie, and, and all, the, all these things that we just kind of take for granted. Once we build on it, it is not coming back. Like you, you, you can't, you can't build a highway and then say, okay, we'll, we'll just plant, you know, plant, plant crops underneath it. That, that's, once it's gone, it's gone. We don't get it back. There's no do-overs. And I feel like that's something that no, nobody can, brings up anymore. Well, I think the other thing that people don't get is uh, in Vaughan, where the highway is going through and, and Peel, if you look at the agricultural map, um, it's really quite striking. It's, it's, uh, it is like class one and class two soil, which is some of the best farmland in Canada. Soil, you know, takes centuries to make. It's a natural and physiological process um, that happens over time. And uh, so it's a, it's a finite non-renewable resource. And, you know, mm. we're not treating our soil like this. We're abusing it. And United Nations has come out and, and you know, done some campaigns to try and help raise awareness of this. Um, and then the, like, there's a lot, you know, there's this belief that the white belt is sprawl and waiting. And I think it's been around for a long time. And it's not. It's prime farmland. And we have to stop calling it white belt. Uh, the other thing with a lot of this land is it's already owned by developers because they bought it for speculate. They've bought it on speculation, and and you know I'm sure they've probably been told things about what's going to happen with it that none of us are privy to, or you know those sort of things. But you can't prove any of that. And I think there was just the price- you're right. There was an assumption even from when it was created that this was land that would be built on. Um, yeah, it's it's called white belt land because like, it was uh, yeah. Yeah, it's it's called white belt because that was the color on the map, right? Like that was it wasn't it's land that wasn't in the urban boundary and it wasn't in the green belt. So they started just calling it white belt land. It's not it's not a to my knowledge, it's not a defined legislative term. It's just a term that that those particular lands have assumed, and it's a narrative. I think that developers and politicians, pro pro developer politicians, have 
you know, kind of facilitated that it's just sort of sprawl and waiting that will be opened up, opened up one day. And, you know, we have a very pro-development government that wants to make that happen. Um, I do want to say on the farming point, because California is going through an extreme drought. And, you know, there was a Global Mail article the other day, and it said it had a, a term I'd never heard before. It was exceptional. So there's like now a term that's even above extreme for drought in California. It's exceptional. So they're going to start putting in a lot of water restrictions in California. Ontario gets a lot of its food from California. Um, you know, in the winter, a lot of our fresh produce comes from there. And cost of food's rising. You know, I don't think anybody who's gone to the grocery store recently is going to argue with that. I know that my bill um, frequently goes up over 300 and it's hit 400. And I don't ever remember that happening before the pandemic, unless I was, you know, going to the cottage for a week or something. Uh, so the cost of food is going to keep rising. And to lose these lands seems so short-sighted and irresponsible of politicians who are enabling it to happen. Um, against, actually, I would say the recommendations of staff and subject matter experts as well. That's the other thing, right? There's a lot of political decisions that are happening right now that are purely political. They're not actually based on good, you know, expert advice on subject matter experts on the research. And they, the politicians need to get called out on that. And we need to start we need to support our politicians to make the right decisions. That's also another problem. And a lot of these problems are just, they're wicked problems. There is no easy solution. We're just coming up on the, on the last couple of minutes, I think, here. I just wanted, you mentioned briefly uh, in passing just the the role of municipalities in this. I know in, in Holton and, um, well, certainly in Holton, and I believe in Mississauga, there was kind of fairly, uh, um, well, Peel, I should say, there were fairly strong statements initially against the highway. And then uh, there was a very strange thing that happened in Milton where the Milton Council suddenly reversed its position. Um, and then in Vaughan and, well, I believe in in your part of the world, kind of north of Toronto, the, the cities are acting quite differently with regard to this road. Is that right? Am I understanding so, that correctly? Vaughan is where my municipality. So uh, our we have five local councillors, a mayor, and three regional councillors. Our five local councillors voted to withdraw support for the highway. Our mayor and regional councillors maintain their support. So Vaughan's municipality withdrew its support. The region of York uh, maintained its support for the highway. The region of York also made a decision uh, recently, uh, it's called yesterday, actually, ROPA 7, um, which downgrades greenbelt protection. So it's not actually taking uh, the greenbelt out, but it's allowing um, rural like park uses on agricultural lands um, for, and it's a private request of developers to do so. So York Region, in my humble opinion, is uh, they're, I, I, they're, they're making decisions that support developers and regardless of what the public or their staff or subject matter experts say, and it, it's really alarming. It's, it's actually one of the decisions that I've been more disturbed by since I've started following um, municipal politics and a lot of these other environmental issues that concern me. Uh, Caledon, as a municipality, supports the highway still, uh, and but the region of Peel withdrew their support. Milton... Um, I think Milton tried to put a motion in to withdraw their support and it wasn't successful. So I think Milton's kind of neutral. Like they don't support it and they don't not support it. Yeah. Well, they, they voted one way. They've definitely withdrawn it. Yeah. 
Yeah, they've withdrawn the, the, their support. So Milton councillors, I think Milton councillors are regional and local, I believe. That certainly happens in quite a few of the uh, cities here. Yeah, I think Milton um, is part and of And at uh, the regional level, they voted against. And then at local council, suddenly some of those councillors changed their mind. And yes. the timing was interesting. Let's just leave it at that. But anyway. Um, yeah, so after the. Yeah, I mean, I was, we took the. So when we went sorry. out and we got together, we you know, the community groups came out and I think we really surprised a lot of the municipal and local councils because they were saying, well, there's nothing we can do. It's a provincial project. And, we're, and we were like, well, yeah, you supported the project. So clearly you supported the highway. So clearly there's something that you can do. You can withdraw that motion and withdraw your support for the highway. And um, that was kind of how we started. And I think that really blindsided a lot of uh, local councils and because they weren't you know, I don't think they ever thought they were going to get called out on expressing that support for the highway. And some of the motions were like, support it and build it as fast as you can. And we were like, hello, you never asked us. You did, did you ask anybody? Did you consult with the public? How can you take that position when you haven't even asked your constituents? And, and, and the, I just the development to... industry in, in, in Vaughan is very strong, isn't it? I've heard say over the years. Well, <laughs> it is really strong. And so what put me over the edge and made me such a vocal advocate was the arrival of three MZOs on Vaughn, on a Vaughn council agenda as an addendum. So there was absolutely no opportunity for the public to, you know, have any feedback at all. They were put forward by our mayor, Mayor Bevilacqua. And I, you know, I was like, what, like, what is happening? Like I used to work in municipal governance. I was like, how is this even happening? Like, why is this here? Like, I don't get it at all. And the more I would research it, the more I would just be really concerned about, you know, why the mayor was pushing this and the role of staff. And even to this day, the six MZOs that Vaughn has endorsed were not reviewed by staff or legal. So prior to our council endorsing them. So what's the liability to the city of Vaughn is my question. If, you know, things go south on this and there's Lots more sketchy things. Like, I have no idea who wrote the very technical whereas clauses. I don't think it was the mayor and staff said that they didn't write them. So that leads me to believe that the developers wrote the whereas clauses and they got direct access to our council agenda. And I find that highly concerning to have that level of influence. And, and this is happening all the way through. And, you know, there's been newspaper article after newspaper article about the PC government and, you know, them basically catering to who they who lobbies them. Um, so there's not equal access and there's a lack of fairness right now. I think that's and something I, we should maybe pick up on, a, on, a, on a, in another interview. And I think it'd be a very, very interesting uh, subject to, to delve more into. The point I wanted to make was that what I realized when I started researching at Vaughan Council was only developers were coming to speak and give deputations. And our council was taking these deputations like they were the public interest. And they're not. They're, they're, those are the interests of the, the private interest of the vested financial interests of the developer. And, you know, I, I w it was really shocking to me. And, it, you know, and this has gone all the way up. I, I equate what's happened since the pandemic started with like, having a belief system dismantled. What I thought government was and what it is are not one and the same. Um, I think we're going to have to leave uh, the episode on that note because uh, we're coming up on our, on our limit here. Uh, so I'm just going to say thank you very much, Irene, for for coming with us and sharing those thoughts. This is unfortunately we, we thought this this story was kind of 
on the way out, it appears not to be the case. So we'll probably have you, you and hopefully someone else from Stop the 413 on again uh, to to follow up with uh, the next developments. So thank you very much, Irene, for your, your time today. And uh, we wish you all the best on your on your endeavors. Thank you so much. I, I really appreciate it. And uh, I, you know, I'm, I'm just thrilled that you want to hear what I have to say, because I'm, I'm highly concerned. And I think that awareness needs to be raised and people, people need to participate. People need to know what's going on. Thank you so much. Absolutely. That's it for this episode of the 905er. Thank you for listening. As always, you can send us your feedback, thoughts, and concerns, or ideas for future episodes to our email, info at 905er.ca. We'd love to hear from you. You can help us keep the 905er going by financially supporting us through Patreon as well as PayPal. Visit us at 905er.ca and click on the support tab. As well, links are in the show notes for your convenience. Lastly, you can find us on social media. Search for the underscore 905er on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. So long for now. See you next time. Kundle, host of the Sound Off Podcast, the show about podcast and broadcast. Since 2016, we've been speaking with amazing people who have populated your ears for decades. Legendary broadcasters, research wizards, talent experts, podcasters, voice talent, almost 400 stories, all for free. Subscribe or follow the Sound Off Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, or at soundoffpodcast.com.